Welcome to the LEO Business Podcast, sponsored by LEO Networks, Ireland's leader in business connectivity. I'm your host, Joe Lynham, News Talks Business Editor. By sponsoring this podcast, LEO Networks aims to equip businesses of all sizes with insights from industry leaders, addressing today's most pressing challenges and fostering informed decision making and empower you with the knowledge you need to thrive in this digital age. Now, unless you've been living under a rock, you will know that artificial intelligence is set to dominate how we live and how we work. Machines are learning and even teaching themselves, and it all reminds us of Terminator 2 a bit, which didn't end very well for civilization. But can we control it before it gets out of hand, and will it end up being good for us? Joining me now is the AI expert, Dr. Abiba Berheni. She's a cognitive scientist and a senior advisor in AI accountability at the Mozilla Foundation and an adjunct assistant professor at Trinity College Dublin. In September, Time magazine named her one of the world's 100 most influential people in the field of AI. And most recently, she was appointed the UN's new advisory body on AI governance. So no pressure. We're expecting great things from you. Uh, <laughs> is the world going to come to an end thanks to AI? Uh, unfortunately, no. Okay. That a lot of what uh, you hear around, you know, AI is going to finish us all. It's going to be, you know, the end of the world. All that is uh, either kind of staged PR driven by big corporations who want to kind of focus on these uh, abstract and irrelevant questions. Uh, and also driven by a lot of our mi- very uh, misconceptions uh, and um, wrong understanding around what AI is. So all that understanding of AI that is like Terminator-like, that's going to, you know, control itself and go wrong, uh, go rogue. Mm. Uh, all that you can just like throw, discard in the bin. That okay. is ungrounded. Uh, all AI is human through and through and through. So there is no fully autonomous AI. This is one thing that uh, that I think it's really important to clarify. Even though AI is made out or presented as something, you know, that's controlling itself, that's teaching itself, mm. that is almost almost always, you know, a, a, a misconception. Okay. Uh, you know, from the data that we use to train AI to the, you know, the, the model itself, you know, adjusting the weights itself to the, you know, debugging, coding, managing mm-hmm. the system itself. There has to be people all the way through. When people's input stop, AI stops as well. And also something we have to remember is all these, uh, you know, seemingly super impressive state of the art technologies even like, you know, large language models, generative systems like, you know, DALI or stable diffusion that you can put a text query and they give you an image output. Even all these amazing technologies are very brittle. You know, you can change a tiny little thing, for example, in the pixel of the image that that you are giving them and they can completely mislabel or misclassify something. So they are very susceptible to prone to errors, prone to failures. So there is, we still need a really handheld, you know, hu- you know, a very uh, 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 human grip for uh, for AI to 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 operate. Now, in its for an audience, I mean, we have a fairly sophisticated audience. Anyone listening to this podcast will be interested in technology and modern stuff anyway. What is artificial intelligence? As in, what what is it? What does it constitute, and what's the background to it? 
That's a really good question. So we can go back all the way to, say, the 1950s, the 1960s. That's when, you know, uh, artificial intelligence was kind of kind of founded as an uh, as a proper academic field. And back then, artificial the idea of artificial intelligence was to recreate human-like intelligence. You know, machines that can, you know, identify objects or classify and categorize items and so on. Mm-hmm. But now, decades later, all that objective of recreating human intelligence in machines has slowly and gradually shifted away into, you know, creating huge financial business empires. Mm-hmm. So if you look at, for example, 20 years ago, the most influential wealthiest corporations or companies used to be like automotive companies, car manufacturing, mm-hmm. you know, Oil food, companies. food chains, yeah, mm-hmm. uh, f- you know, supermarket chains mm-hmm. and, and, you know, and, and so on. Uh, but now, if you look at, you know, every year Forbes releases the list for the most influential or the wealthiest corporations in over the past, you know, 18 years, all that has changed. It's mm. all what's known as FANG, you know, these big corporations. Oh, the new one, by the way, is Magnificent Seven. That yeah. includes all the, the so-called FANGs, Facebook and Apple and yes. Alphabet and all that. But it's now has added NVIDIA. Ex- yeah, NVIDIA is actually one of the most influential yeah, uh, companies. So, yes. So now what we find is, you know, all that recreating human intelligence is gone. And you can think of artificial intelligence as automating in its very broadest sense. You can think of it as automating the world we live in. And there are various subcategories within AI. Uh, you, for example, computer vision. It's all about automating the visual world, mm-hmm. what we see, by collecting massive amounts of, you know, image data, video data, and so on. You can think of another subcategory of AI within the uh, subfield called NLP, natural language processing, where it's all about, you know, recreating speech and language and so on. So, for example, large language models are part of that. Mm-hmm. So the idea, again, is to collect massive amounts of text data or voice data. It's all about the data, terabytes of Yes, data, massive amounts and of data. And is it ab- about how the data is processed that is important? So... Yeah, so going back to your earlier question, I mean, artificial intelligence, the concepts are not new. The concepts and the ideas have been there since the 50s, 60s, even 40s. Mm. But what really made a massive leap, what really made a massive change over the past 15, 20 years is the availability, I say availability in a quotation mark, of massive amounts of data thanks to the internet. So data really, data sets are really the backbone of, you know, AI systems without massive amounts of data, you really cannot train uh, and, and you know, validate and test AI systems. So data really is important and the quality of your data determines the quality, the performance of your, your AI models. The really interesting thing is much of the data that's out there has been uploaded by ordinary people. In the past, the protection of data with security services, the military and corporations. Now, we out there upload terabytes and whatever the next bytes is ourselves. Exactly. So yeah, the data that's kind of harvested and used as training material is the kind of data, yeah, me and you and any other individual uploads on the web. It might be your selfie, it might be your comment on some kind of forum. So all that text, all that image is scraped and then assembled as a data set and that's used then to train AI systems. So that's it. It's what you do with the data that really matters. Um 
in, on how good your data is. Ah, so how can you, how can the computer system or the code that's written define good from bad data? See, all this has to be done by humans. Aha. And this is this is one of my expertise. The, I, I work in kind of evaluating and examining large-scale data sets. So uh, one of my most recent work is uh, examining the line data set, which is used for one of the most uh, advanced or state-of-the-art uh, uh, generative models called stable diffusion. So Stable diffusion. Stable diffusion, yes. Uh, I so uh, it, it you we worked with the dataset called the line dataset. It has five billion image and text pairs. Oh. So yes, and, and me and my team worked kind of examining, looking at how much hate content there is in the textual description of that that dataset. Mm. And we tested the hypothesis that you know everybody's mad about larger, bigger, you know, the bigger the data set, the larger the model, mm -hmm. the assumption within the, the machine learning community is the better. So we tested that. We compared two data sets. One is the line 400 million data set. So it's a data set containing 400 million image and text pairs. Mm -hmm. And we compared that to uh, another data set containing 2 billion image and text pairs. Okay. And we measured the amount of hateful content, hateful speech, aggressive mm -hmm. speech, and tar targeted speech. And we found, you know, as data set gets larger, uh, it, things don't get better. Hateful, hateful content, in fact, gets uh, exacerbated. So as your data set gets larger, so do your problems. Ah, so the more data you have, the more misogyny you might get, the more racism you might get, the more homophobia you might get. Yeah. But that kind of is counterintuitive, isn't it? Exactly, exactly. Even though we do, the assumption is that, you know, the larger the data, you know, the good and the bad will balance out and you will end up with something, you know, relatively objective or relatively close to the ground truth. But that's false. And this is not just with the data that myself and my colleagues examined. This is with any data and all data that is harvested from the web. Mm. And unfortunately, the web is the only place where you can collect huge volumes of yeah. data. So for any data that is like collected and assembled from the web, you are guaranteed to have, you know, racism, misogyny, hateful content, stereotypes, and so on, and content that shouldn't be there. For example, in my previous work, we found, you know, things such as, you know, um, Pornography. There was so much pornography in one of the, the data sets we audited. You know things like you know images of genocide, images of child rape, images of things I can't say here yeah, uh, yeah. on on air. So unless we actively look at the data that we are using for training AI, unless we actively you know investigate and clean and detoxify these data sets, it's guaranteed that any data we must we you know harvest in mass from the web is guaranteed to contain all these problems. Now, uh, you harvest from the official World Wide Web. Uh, is there any point in trying to get data from the dark web? <laughs> so, uh, I mean, so it's so it's not the whole of the web that is harvested. So uh, you have a, uh, an uh, organization called uh, the Common Crawl. Uh, it's a San Francisco-based organization. Mm -hmm. They have been collecting, they have been scraping the web, you know, every day or every few days rather, and like putting it in this huge, huge dump mm. 
For, so for a lot of machine learners or for a lot of the models that we hear about, including ChatGPT or DALI or mm. Google Spark right. or any of the others. So either all of the data or most of the data or some of the data comes from that common crawl, this, this huge dump where parts of the internet is scooped and, and put there. And uh, unfortunately, even, even with that uh, relatively careful curation, you know, the web still contains, you know, the nastiness, the ugliness, as well as the beauty of humanity. So That's because people can hide behind anonymous profiles and all that kind of stuff. You exactly. did some work with MIT, Massachusetts Institute of Technology, working on image library. Tell us about that. Yeah, this was back, I think, two or three years ago now. Uh, it was one of my first data In set. AI terms, that's 20 years ago. Yes, yeah, yeah <laughs> because things move yeah. so fast, even within the last two years. Yeah. The way data sets are curated and created has changed dramatically. And you have new models, new data sets being released every other week. So mm. it's really two, three weeks within the AI world is very, very long time. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I, I was working on actually on a dataset called ImageNet. So ImageNet is one of the best image libraries, image datasets that there exists for academic researchers for training, you know, computer vision models. Uh, and we did our experiments. We wrote up our analysis and findings and so on. And we found problematic content, you know, such as images of children, images of, you know, upskirt, uh, images of women and so on. And then I was trying to write up some background for, for the paper. And, uh, and then I fell into a rabbit hole where I discovered that the taxonomy. So when you create, you know, a, a huge data set, you need a way of organizing that. You need to taxonomize it. So, so put it to categories and folders and stuff? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, you, you know, it's just massive and, you know, it's just a huge dump. So you have to have, like, for example, objects and people. Ah, right. Within people, you will have, like, you know, based on gender or based on nationality or based on age or so on. Mm -hmm. uh, the same with objects. So I discovered that the the taxonomy that ImageNet was using is called WordNet, and I knew WordNet had a problem. So I looked further and uh, found out, you know, I was like, what other data sets uses the same taxonomy? And then that's when I discovered this 80 million tiny images. And this image data set has been around for over, uh, you know, 10 years. It has been very important to the computer vision community where... And this is all at MIT? The data set is hosted, mm. was hosted by MIT. Mm. And we, you know, there have been hundreds of academic papers published using that data set as you know, as as a training material or as a basis for experimentation and so on, mm. and we were the first one to actually go in and examine the dataset, and we found thousands and thousands and thousands of images labeled, you know, with the C word, with the N word, with the W word. Words I can't say again mm. here. Sure. Uh, uh, that we had to blur out. And after, you know, at one stage I was on Wikipedia looking for a list of uh, racial slurs and various problems. Does that not Just, affect you and your it team? It does, it does. It's It has a huge psychological impact. It really has a huge impact. It makes you feel it's, uh, you know, after a few hours of, you know, sifting through this data set, it, it really, you just, you feel really just... And your faith in humanity must dip a bit as well. It's very challenging work. You do face like mood swings and just you, 
and then you, sometimes you even just like you you are not sure what the meaning of all of this is and you just want to step away from 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 it all uh, so you you work with a team and you have to look after your team as well yeah 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 we do because these data sets are huge they there is no way the you know it's not a task for one or two or three people you need a, a large team with various expertise, you know, expertise from statistics, expertise from machine learning, expertise from, you know, the critical social sciences uh, space, uh, expertise from the legal space. So, uh, yeah, you do need you do need a large team to do justice to this uh, kind of to, work. And you have to look out for them as well because they have to look at all this garbage as well, I presume. Yeah. yeah. Is it difficult to get qualified people in AI? Because there's a lot of talk and a bit less talent. It depends. It I'm I don't know. It depends. I mean, one person's qualified person is another person's. Just scratching the surface. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, for me, my work focuses on you know there is so much overhype. There is so much talk about the benefits of AI, how AI is going to transform this sector in that sector. So for me, because there is so much you know uh, so much people evangelizing AI. For me, I feel my, you know, my core objective is to also show the drawbacks and the limitations and the problems and the failures of such AI systems to kind of counter back all that overhype and all that, you know, overenthusiasm. Mm. Uh, so for me, uh, I would, you know, people I'd consider qualified enough is people who have enough critical knowledge or you know, people from the background that is able to in critically interrogate yeah. people that are able to see beyond all this fluff, beyond all this, you know, extreme enthusiasm and evangelism. And can there be bluffers out there? People who will stand up and say, actually, <laughs> I know a lot about AI. Step aside. You know what I mean? And they might know very little. Unfortunately, you find that a lot and increasingly so. Is it because a lot of people can't say, well, you're right or you're wrong? Is because it's such a specialized area? I mean, you can say, you know, with. You can't, but, you know, the rest <laughs> of us can't, you know. This is why we have to be careful. Like, a lot of what we hear is over exaggeration mm -hmm. about the capabilities of the AI systems. So, uh, as I said earlier, the, brittle of, the brittleness of the systems, the, mm. the fact that they can fail very easily, these are things you don't hear. So we have to balance out all this enthusiasm with also actual realities of the the the, the AI systems that we are talking about. Mm. But as you said, yes, not just for the general public, even within you know AI research, sometimes it can be difficult to tell what is a bluff from what is actual verifiable claim. Mm. Because sometimes, you know, some researchers might have some grain of truth and then overinflate and over-exaggerate, you know, the capabilities of the models that they are building. So as you said, yes, it's really difficult to differentiate between what's real and what's exaggerated. But the rule of thumb, my rule of thumb is if it sounds too good to be true. It might be true. It's very likely it's too good to be true. There is no AI, you know, that can be a bulletproof solution for you know a random problem mm. ai might aid us a little bit but we still need human verification in human human critical analysis before we take in any ai output what about the legislation that uh, 
is coming down the tracks. I mean, we've already seen the EU publish an EU AI Act, um, and it's one of the first major jurisdictions to do so. Can it insist upon human domination of AI and the coding that goes into it, or is that just a hope rather than an expectation? I mean, especially recently, you know, over the past couple of months, even yeah, the past couple of months, you had, uh, you know, the uh, over the U.S., uh, you had this uh, uh, this uh, executive order from uh, Biden, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris, and we had the U.K. AI summit. I was uh, over in London for it a few weeks ago, four, five, three, four weeks ago, and you know, you have the EU AI Act that has been going on for a while, so. Uh, there has been a lot of movements trying to kind of regulate AI uh, at a, a global international level. Uh, we, uh, at the moment currently with the UN, we are working to draft some kind of, you know, guideline uh, outlining what what risks, what actual risks, not these overinflated or exaggerated, you know, doomsday scenarios that you hear about over in the media. Uh, so what actual risks, risks exist and what can be done about them? Uh, so there is there is some movement and it's all encouraging and uh, whether you know it, it can be re- reinforceable remains to be seen. There is always the risk, though, isn't there, Abiba, that rogue states will ignore whatever. Let's say the UN comes up with a, a mandate or a charter, an AI charter, that rogue states that don't really care will ignore it and they could program AI stuff which could genuinely cause problems. For example, in the spreading of disinformation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the spreading of disinformation, you can think of it like rogue states as doing in, doing it intentionally, but you can also think of there is already a mass spread of disinformation that has been facilitated by big tech corporations such as Facebook. Yes. So Facebook has been for many, many years. Instead of deleting it, it's um, spreading it. Yeah, exactly. They do. They 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 thrive. They feed on on misinformation. So mm. it's not a matter of rogue states. It's also, you know, uh, it, it's tied to uh, revenue and you know uh, uh, financial financial incentives. The more clicks there is, no matter whether it's dif- harmful disinformation or not, companies like Facebook, that that's how they generate their their re- revenue through the algorithms. Yeah, exactly. So in terms of, you know, uh, can it be reinforced against uh, these uh, rogue states? You can say the same thing about other things. That's not AI. So it's not particularly uh, a matter of AI, you know, if... if, Including weaponry and military hardware and all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. If a state, you know, decides not to cooperate globally, then whether it's AI or other military material, Mm. then, you know, that's that. Yeah. So I don't see AI being anything particular or different. And of course, um, a bunch of about 40 or so US states have taken action against Meta, which owns Facebook um, for the, their algorithm and the spread of uh, certain bits of information. Um, mm-hmm. Someone very wise said the second smartest thing that someone can say is, I don't know. Are there enough people out there that are super wise to say, actually, I don't know? I wish there was. <laughs> I wish there was. I mean, we should do, we should say, you know, I don't know more often. And more importantly, what is missing from the current AI, from the current models that we are developing is, uh, you know, I don't know. You can 
ask for example a generative model you know you can put in a certain query and if the model doesn't have you know sufficient information it's not programmed to give you an output that says i don't know it will and, and yet chat gpt will never give you the answer i don't know no it will kind of estimate the closest uh, information or or it will just make up this is called hallucination it's one of the biggest problems with large language models it will just make up information that sounds plausible that sounds very human actually that to sounds make, to factual make up stuff. <laughs> Yeah, so this is why it's really important to any 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 information we get from AI systems, any output, any use that we are deploying these AI systems for, we have to double check with, you know, with humans, mm. more particularly with experts because the information that these AIs can produce is not un- is is not reliable. As I said, hallucination is one of the biggest problems that hasn't been solved yet. So, for example, Meta, uh, Facebook had a model about eight months ago now called Galactica. The whole idea of that model was to aid scientific writing. It was, it you will give it like, for example, a title, write an academic paper on such and such topic, and it will produce a whole scientific paper giving you like references and citations. A and thesis so kind of? Yeah. But guess what? It was it was taken down three days after because it was producing nonsense. For example, we were able to get the model to produce on the health benefits of eating crushed glass. It give it would give you like a whole scientific paper, even breaking down the nutritious values and so on. So this is why we cannot take any AI output without actual verification. Uh, ChatGPT is the is the best known ger- generative AI that that we know. It's 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 on the market only about a year, yeah. and yet we all know the exactly brand. Exactly a year now. Is there a, a risk or a problem with people using it in the workplace, and how do employers mitigate that? Yeah. So this is this is the you know uh, this is a tough question. It can be helpful in in some ways. It can, for example, if you are trying to, for example, draft. A work email, uh, it might, it will help you like generate an email uh, or it could help you write, you know, a, a certain text or a certain business proposal or whatever purpose you are looking for. However, as I said, you can't take the output, you can't trust the output, you can't take it for granted that what has been written is actually valid, reliable and correct information. You always have to double check and triple check you have maybe you can use it to generate something but that's something you have to verify you have to rewrite or you have to uh, you have to check for yourself so it depends uh, uh, if, if it can be useful for business or not but the most important point I want to make is that you cannot trust the output you have to check and verify for yourself that sounds as if you need more rather than fewer people to make sure that AI works this is the thing. We constantly hear that AI is going to take over the jobs. AI is going to take over, you know, the work of artists and writers and novelists and so on. Mm-hmm. But what's actually happening is that people are using AI to emulate or to, you know, copy the the work of novelists, artists and writers. And those very novelists and writers are being paid less to verify the content that 
you know that AI has has uh, produced. Mm-hmm. So it really is not a matter of replacing people, but it's a matter of like people doing the same amount of work but getting paid less. Are the universities producing enough experts in the field? Because it's a pretty new and rapidly developing field. But if you don't have the experts to verify the stuff that you're talking about, then you will have a problem. Yeah. So this is we actually had, uh, you know, within my own university here in Trinity, we had we've been having a lot of these conversations. You know, should we allow ChatGPT, you know, uh, for, to be used by students and so on? So this is an, an ongoing conversation. Uh, and the concerns seems to be that, you know, students have to be equipped with critical thinking rather than, you know, saying you can use it or you are for, forbidden from using it. Mm. That That's not sustainable. That doesn't work. Mm. The idea is to equip students with critical thinking so that they have the capacity so that they are able to critically analyze what these models have given them before they just take it all in without any critical assessment. Abiba, quite a few business people and entrepreneurs and SMEs will be listening to this podcast and they might feel under pressure to use AI when it may not suit their business. Would there there be any advice you could give to them who are being bombarded with AI, 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 and and it might not be suitable? Yeah, 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 exactly. So this is not only business, actually. So even I, I consider myself as an academic, even in academia, you know, any any domain, whether it's in healthcare or even in law enforcement, uh, you you feel this pressure to to kind of jump in the AI bandwagon. And if you are not using AI, you are made feel like you are missing out somehow. But I think that is the wrong approach. I mean, depending on, of course, it depends on the specific project, the specific business you have and mm-hmm. the specific objective you want to achieve within your business. Uh, you know, considering all those conditions, maybe, you know, using a generative model to, you know, to get, you know, a kickstart might mm-hmm. be, might be some, somewhat beneficial. Uh, but also we have to remember, you know, a lot of the current AI, especially generative systems are just made, you know, these big corporations are just building them without any specific use case or any specific purpose. So it's like a hammer floating around looking for a nail. Mm -hmm. So if it's not, if it doesn't work for you, if it's not adding anything to you, you know, discard all this pressure, uh, pressure, you don't have to use it. Yeah, Uh, it's a bit like .com about 20 years ago when everybody put .com after their name, but they weren't a technology play at all. Exactly. And for all we know, all this hype around generative AI might die off and we might, we are very likely to move on in the next year or two. I wonder whether companies might be able to use AI in the interview process. So when they get a forest of CVs or resumes as they stay in America, uh, whether that could help them. Um, or whether that could hinder them because it might could weed out, for example, minority groups exactly, much quicker. Exactly, exactly. So you can say both. It can do both. It can help, but also it can harm. So it can help because if you are a large company and you are you advertise for a job, you are going to re- receive thousands of applications. So for you know to go through all those applications, you know, uh, for a human being is you know very cost efficient and time consuming. So using algorithms to sort out what should what should be picked to, to the next process or to be seen by a human 
does save a lot of cost in time for companies, but also we have seen time and time and time again, there has been a robust amount of research studies showing that using algorithms this way to sort out CVs has shown to exclude, you know, minorities, to exclude women, you know, sexual minorities. Amazon, for example, in 2008 uh, was using uh, an AI algorithm to, uh, to, to kind of classify, to judge the best applicant. And they trained their system based on the past 10 years of, you know, the company's employment, the pa- so 10 years of historical data to kind of like based on the data, based on whom we have hired over the past 10 years, they kind of programmed the algorithm based on the past, whom we have hired over, over the past 10 years, tell us who is the best hire, you know, in the mm. future. And what they found was that because their historical data is so biased towards men, because they have hired you know, over 90 or 80 or nine, I, I don't have the exact, but it's huge the amount. Of, the vast majority of their employees have been white men. What the algorithm was doing was excluding, you know, CVs of minorities and women. Mm-hmm. So, for example, you know, if on your CV, if you have captain of women's hockey club or something like that, that would be automatically excluded You're because gone. it continued, it contained the word women in it. And, uh, that was back in 2018. And now we don't know the exact number, but almost all big companies use some kind of AI to sift through applications. And because these are proprietary rights, these are information that's guarded. So it's difficult to get the exact estimation. But the idea is the, the number of companies that are using AI to sort out CVs is increasing. But the underlying problem, the fact that these algorithms learn historical date, historical bias and societal inequalities remains the same. So for most of these kind of AIs, you can guarantee, again, even though it's cost efficient for companies, you are you risk, you know, excluding uh, minorities uh, from from the workforce. We're coming to the end. I feel a little bit better about AI after talking to you than I I'm did glad. at the start. <laughs> uh, is there any final thought about it that you'd like to kind of tell our listeners? Uh, yeah, the final thought, because there is so much, you know, over-enthusiasm about almost, you know, half-baked models that are hardly vetted or evaluated, uh, we have to be vigilant, be, you know, be suspicious of what you hear, be critical of what you hear. If you hear, you know, AI is doing something that sounds too magical, then don't trust it. It probably is too good to be true. Uh, and yeah, we can be rest assured that without humans, there cannot be AI. <laughs> all f- For all the talk of this, you know... Uh, Skynet. Yeah, all, for all the talk of Skynet and uh, Terminator, mm. that remains strictly in the realm of the science fiction. That's not a reality. The the reality, the, the current reality of AI models that we have is they are full of failure modes, they are full of problems, they are very uh, brittle and breakable very easily and need continual human attention and human maintenance. So we, as long as AI exists it will always be controlled by humans. So what we should worry about is the powerful and influential people and corporations that are 
controlling, building, and selling these products, these AI systems. Abiba, thank you very much for joining us. That's Abiba Birhane. Um, you're with Trinity, formerly UCD, Time Magazine's 100 most influential people. You were helping the United Nations. I'd need a separate podcast to discuss your CV. <laughs> but thank you very much for joining uh, the LEO podcast. And don't forget to subscribe to the LEO podcast so that you can get all of them in advance in your inbox before you need to go trawling and looking for it. Thanks to everybody. It's been a great pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. That wraps up another episode of the LEO podcast. We hope you found our discussion as captivating as we did. Remember, our journey through the realms of connectivity, technology and business continues. LEO Networks, with 25 years of serving Irish businesses, offers a unique next-day installation and connectivity service. So stay tuned for more thought-provoking episodes that promise to empower you with the knowledge and inspiration you need. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts.